I don't understand the immense fascination with Josh Gordon. Well, I do, actually. Josh Gordon captures the imagination. Josh Gordon is an empty vessel for which you can project a best-case scenario free square wide receiver parachuting in at the start of the fantasy football playoffs. That's why the conversations on football Twitter are not dominated by Ezekiel Elliott talk or Jay Ajayi talk or Kelvin Benjamin and Devin Funches talk or Jimmy Garoppolo talk. No, none of those. It's all about Josh Gordon. He is dominating the conversation sphere despite not playing football since 2014. It's now 2017. (laughs) Do you remember where you were in 2014? Were you living in the same house you're living in now? Many of you have children that weren't born the last time Josh Gordon played football. Think about that. In the last year he played football, 2014... He didn't even play well. In the five games he played, he was number two in the NFL in target share, 32%, and yet only 303 receiving yards, a negative 26.5 production premium, which looks at Josh Gordon's per target output on any given down and distance against league average, essentially measuring what Josh Gordon was producing on a per opportunity basis above or below expectation outside the top 90. Then target premium, negative 22.6% means that comparing Josh Gordon's per target output to the other receivers in the Browns passing game, he was underperforming that cohort by greater than 20%. So the last time Josh Gordon had an opportunity to perform at the highest level in his profession, he failed. And he failed spectacularly. He was less efficient than 2017 Amari Cooper. <laughs> think about that! So that's the first place I go when I think about Josh Gordon. I don't always default back to 2013. I don't just jump in the time machine, set the dial to 2013, and whoosh, because that's practicing confirmation bias, just returning to the moment that Josh Gordon made you feel good, and ignoring the times he made you feel bad. When you started him in 2014, and he underperformed expectations, no, 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 I don't want to think about that. Josh Gordon is an empty vessel, I am projecting best case scenario, reliving the feel good, the nostalgia is what powers The affinity for Josh Gordon compels fantasy gamers to believe that Josh Gordon can help them win a championship in 2017. We are now four years removed from the last time Josh Gordon was a useful fantasy asset. And yes, in 2013, he was exceptional. He led all receivers in yards per game. 117.6 yards per game in 2013. Let me say that again. 117.6 receiving yards per game. (laughs) What? In a 14-game sample set, that's not insignificant. Air yards, 1,009. So this wasn't a yards-after-the-catch-driven fluke season. It was backed up by concrete target distance, homing in on Josh Gordon time and time and time again. And we will be talking to fantasy football's air yards guru today, Josh Hermsmeyer. But I don't want to talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about Josh Gordon because Josh Gordon is the most speculative fantasy football entity. And he's been this for years. A known unknown. I feel like every syllable uttered about Josh Gordon is wasted because I have no idea what he is. How often has he been working out 
since he was originally suspended? What has he been eating? How many footballs has he caught? I have no idea how explosive this player is or what his skill set looks like at this point. I don't know the rate of deterioration because we rarely see players return after a three-year hiatus, especially a wide receiver, such a specialized skill set. So I have no idea how athletic he is or how skilled he is. So talking about him seems like a colossal waste of time. Martavis Bryant was out of the league for a year and then upon return flamed out. Josh Gordon's been away from the league for three years and he's a year older than Martavis Bryant and yet still I'm sensing the same level of enthusiasm about the Josh Gordon tentative reinstatement as I did about the Martavis Bryant reinstatement and they're not in any way similar. Martavis Bryant was out of the league for one year versus three and he was returning to a relatively prolific offense, not the most prolific, not the most efficient. Ben Roethlisberger is clearly in decline, but it was a functional, productive offense. That's not the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns is antithetical to productive and efficient. So I just don't get the fascination. I view Josh Gordon through a glass half-empty lens. That's true. But I'm open to the possibility that Josh Gordon is in great shape, football shape, and that he can return and take his rightful place in that Browns number one wide receiver chair. I'm open to this possibility. He'll never be 1,600-yard Josh Gordon again because based on his entire body of work, looking back at his college career and the other years that he played wide receiver in the NFL, 2013 was quite clearly an outlier. So we'll never see 1,000-yard Josh Gordon again. That's not going to happen because Josh Gordon was never actually that explosive. I mean, the speed score is above the 80th percentile, but his raw 40 time, only 4.57, and his burst score, which combines the vertical jump and the broad jump into one equally weighted metric, 121.7, 53rd percentile. So he was never that explosive. He was never particularly productive at the college level. Has one good season on his resume and three lost seasons. Whoa! So it's a three-to-one lost season to quality season ratio for Josh Gordon. That's not a player that inspires me. He's not stimulating. Well, <laughs> he knows how to stimulate, but his profile on playerprofiler.com is not exciting because I understand how randomness skews our perception of players, especially the random events and outcomes that can occur in a partial season, in a truncated single season. So I will wait and see and hope for the best, but I have a pessimistic view of Josh Gordon's future. Check the Dynasty rankings on Friday when they're updated, and you'll see Josh Gordon will slot in lower than consensus on the playerprofiler.com Dynasty rankings, because that's rational. It's not emotional. It's not soaked in nostalgia. We're not trying to recreate a moment that happened four years ago. You'll never feel that way again. That high is lost in the sands of time. You can't recreate it. I hope you enjoyed it while it was happening because it was fleeting and it will never return. But he could be useful. Yes, I agree. Yes. I lived through Tim Hightower's New Orleans Renaissance. I was there. I was winning fantasy league championships with Tim Hightower slotted into my RB2 slot after he was out of the league for three years. So stranger things have happened than Josh Gordon returning to fantasy relevance in 2017 
Yes, stranger things have happened, but it's still improbable. Just because outliers exist doesn't mean we should chase outliers. Just because outliers are fun doesn't mean we should chase outliers. Just because hitting on an outlier makes us look smart doesn't mean we should chase outliers. But it's a feel-good story. You want him to succeed. Substance abuse has touched all of us in some way, shape, or form. And to watch someone rise above addiction. Remember, we had Anthony Fasano on talking about addiction. He started a clinic to treat addiction because it touched someone close to him. So I want Josh Gordon to succeed. What an incredible precedent he would set for others facing a similar challenge in their life. Josh Gordon goes out in week 14, posts 100 yards and a touchdown. I will be beaming like the rest of you should be, but I'm not betting on it because his quarterback will either be Kevin Hogan, Cody Kessler, or Deshaun Kaiser. I'm betting on Cody Kessler by the time week 14 rolls around. So, good luck! He beat the odds in 2013, posting over 1,600 receiving yards with Brandon Whedon and Brian Hoyer and Jason Campbell at quarterback. He's beat the odds before he can do it again. Anything is possible. But you know what's not possible? It's not possible that the Cleveland Browns just forgot to fax in the paperwork to acquire A.J. McCarron. I mean, this was dominating the news stream for two days, that all oh, the Cleveland Browns front office just incompetent. They don't even know how to use a fax machine. They don't even know the rules for trading in the NFL. They're lazy. They leave the office at 5 o'clock. They don't even know what's going on around the league. They're not even trying. And when they do execute a trade, it doesn't go through because they forget critical steps that every other front office is well aware of. That's how incompetent Cleveland's quote-unquote moneyball front office is. Moneyball clowns, more like. They don't even know how to do a trade. They couldn't even acquire A.J. McCarron because of a clerical error. That's how incompetent they are. <laughs> how gullible are you people regurgitating that analysis as if it's fact? It's not fact. We don't know why exactly that trade was never executed. All we know is terms were agreed upon and then the trade never happened. Those are the facts. That's what happened. This idea that the analytics guys in the Cleveland front office just blew it blew a golden opportunity to get A.J. McCarron, were asleep at the wheel when they could have had Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah, just failing, failing left and right. Those Moneyball guys, doesn't work in the NFL. Maybe in baseball, but not in the NFL. Nope, nope, nope. Those quants don't even know how to do a trade. Can't even execute a basic secretarial task. Morons. Anyone regurgitating that analysis has no idea what the fuck they're talking about. I mean, how gullible are sports analysts and sports fans that they believe that? Only now, Thursday, is it starting to come out? Oh, 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 so the deal was agreed on in principle by the coaching staff, and the front office looked at the deal and said, um, no, <laughs> no. Those picks would have netted us Jimmy Garoppolo, and we value the picks more than a quarterback dart throw. Even one with a higher probability, like Jimmy Garoppolo, we're certainly not going to invest that future draft capital in a likely bust in A.J. McCarron. Just a desperate heave into the void. No, 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 no. More than most franchises, the Cleveland Browns know what draft picks are worth. They know their probability of hitting. 
It's the Neanderthal sports analysts and sports fans that don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And I began the season filled with encouragement and hope that in the Cleveland Browns, analytics could prevail. And when I talk about analytics, I just mean using probabilities to define possibilities, forming the crux of a decision-making process. That is what every front office needs to implement, and so few do. The Cleveland Browns were a great hope, and it looks like ownership is siding with the coach who wanted to grossly overpay A.J. McCarron in a desperate hope to save his job by publicly criticizing the front office. So Sashi Brown, Paul D. Podesta, and others in that front office will be fired soon. That's my prediction. It's my educated guess, but it looks that way. And this will set us back another five years. It'll be five years before another NFL owner dares to aggressively implement an analytical process into their player personnel, talent acquisition, and development. It's a fucking shame. Why? Because Deshaun Kaiser would prefer to go out drinking than studying film. I mean, that's it, right? If Deshaun Kaiser were better, not Deshaun Watson good, just serviceable. If Deshaun Kaiser were merely serviceable and showed flashes, just flashes of franchise quarterback capability, we wouldn't be here right now. But it's this perceived inability to identify a franchise quarterback that is torpedoing the analytics-focused approach of the Browns' front office. And it's maddening to me. It's maddening how analysts, fans, ownership just play the result. Especially ownership. You knew what you were getting into. You knew this was a multi-year process. It could result in another 0-16 season. That's in the range of outcomes, yes. And when you're 0-16, the sports analysts will go back and second-guess previous draft picks and trades. The Browns killed the 2017 draft. Kenny Britt was a smart free agent acquisition. With hindsight bias, now we can look back and say, well, the Texans actually had the best draft because they got Deshaun Watson, and that's all that matters. Every other draft pick in that draft was secondary to Deshaun Watson. Okay, so the analysis you're seeing both around Cleveland and around Houston perfectly illuminates the dangers of hindsight bias, of playing the result, emphasizing outcomes over process. Houston won a scratch ticket in Deshaun Watson. Cleveland lost on a scratch ticket in Deshaun Kaiser, probably. But these nameless, faceless front office executives are vessels for which we can project our own best case scenario, if I were an NFL GM, if I were a front office executive, I really liked Deshaun Watson at Clemson. I would have aggressively pursued him in the draft. I am the Houston Texans front office. We are all Texans. All of us that enjoyed watching Deshaun Watson at Clemson. We're all Texans now. And no one wants to be a Brown. No. Unless it's fantasy gamers that stashed Josh Gordon on their Dynasty League taxi squad. Those people are genuine Browns fans. I can't wait for Josh Gordon to get reinstated and then accept challenges on no halftime with wide receivers facing off against Josh Gordon at the end of the season. I'll take every challenge on no halftime. Go to nohalftime.com now or go to the App Store, type in no halftime, download the app, sign up, and when you do, use the promo code UNDERWORLD to get a 50% deposit bonus on up to $50. This week, I'll be playing Drew Brees against Deshaun Watson. Love these one-on-one, single-player prop bet challenges on no halftime. We'll also take Kareem Hunt over Todd Gurley, LaShawn McCoy, and Leonard Fournette. We'll talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about Kareem Hunt. 
All the lights are flashing green on the Kareem Hunt profile, now heading into an attractive matchup against the Dallas Cowboys. And there's a lot of green lights flashing on the Alex Collins profile. Oh, yes. We'll talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about Alex Collins as well. If I'm setting up a draft on the draft app, I'm certainly targeting Alex Collins, who we have ranked higher than consensus on the playerprofiler.com weekly rankings. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings to see our weekly running back rankings. Alex Collins slotted in surprisingly high. So if I'm on draft, I am targeting Alex Collins for my RB2 slot. So go to your app store, download the draft app, And when you do, use the promo code UNDERWORLD and you get free entry into your first contest with a deposit of $10 or more. And the draft app allows you to challenge your friends, four-team league, eight-team league, 12-team league, to a single-week DFS-style contest where the rosters are determined by snake draft. Just takes a few minutes on your phone. Everyone picks players throughout the day. Boom, 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 boom. You set up a one-week-only team via Snake Draft. Everyone's roster is unique. No one is using the same players. It's my favorite way to play DFS. So go to PlayDraft.com to learn more, or just go to your app store and download the Draft app now, and be sure to use the promo code UNDERWORLD. And I know what you're thinking. You're Matt Kelly. You love speed scores and schmeed scores and spark and schmark. True. True, but I love college domination more when evaluating players with flimsy NFL resumes. Alex Collins has a flimsy NFL resume. He's played less than a full season of games, so we have to zoom out and look at his college production. He exceeded 1,000 yards as a true freshman in the SEC, and then he had a 20-touchdown season in his junior year before coming out early while splitting carries with Jonathan Williams. We love Jonathan Williams as LaShawn McCoy's handcuff. Well, Alex Collins was better than Jonathan Williams, hogged the carries at Arkansas, and scored 20 times. Ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. If you don't believe me, ask Rasheed Wallace. I mean, Alex Collins is number one in yards per carry. He's also number one in breakaway run rate. He's number five in yards created per carry and number five in juke rate. This guy is incredibly efficient. And because of the efficiency, I believe the Baltimore coaches will skew the opportunity share toward Alex Collins. 60-70% opportunity share in the weeks ahead. And John Harbaugh has already alluded to this shift because Alex Collins has a 6.2 yards per touch. Javorius Allen has a 3.8 yards per touch. You don't need playerprofiler.com as a coach putting in the film and seeing, wow, look at Alex Collins breaking tackles, rolling up yards, ringing up first downs while Javorius Allen is being tackled in the backfield. The coaches see this, and because of that, Alex Collins will be bequeathed more opportunity. This is how efficiency matters. It can lead to opportunity. The opposite is true for Devontae Freeman. Devontae Freeman's efficiency has been muted this year. It's been less than Tevin Coleman, right? So Devontae Freeman, 4.5 yards per carry, 5.0 yards per touch, 7.2 production premium. Tevin Coleman, 5.4 yards per carry, 6.7 yards per touch, and a plus 21.8 production premium. So if you're Atlanta coaches, you see this reflected in the tape as well. When you put the tape in, you see these splash plays from Tevin Coleman not Devontae Freeman. So when the game is on the line and you go to call a run play, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Atlanta coaches? And we're seeing this more and more. They're giving the ball to Tevin Coleman. They're giving it less to Devontae Freeman, particularly in the passing game. 
I wrote an article about this on Yahoo Sports. Check out our timeline at Roto Underworld or just go to sports.yahoo.com forward slash fantasy. And you can see what I think about both Alex Collins and Devontae Freeman moving forward. I know Devontae Freeman is a savant back. I understand he has incredible instincts. He's just not an every-down player. He only has 11 career games, including college, with more than 20 carries. And all the Atlanta players are experiencing a regression this year because of course they are. Because everything that happened to the Atlanta offense last year was unsustainable. And all the ways that running backs compile fantasy points are eluding Devontae Freeman. He scored 13 touchdowns last year. He hasn't scored in over a month this year. And his targets are way down. He's going to catch 20 fewer passes this year. 20 fewer passes. Think about that. And now he's hurt. So I have Devontae Freeman and Alex Collins slotted in very close to one another on the Week 9 rankings. I'm also higher on Dede Westbrook than consensus. Why? Because Jacksonville needs playmakers. Allen Robinson's gone. Have you checked out the passing game in Jacksonville since Allen Robinson went down? Again, the coaches see this. They have a healthy D.D. Westbrook. D.D. Westbrook, who posted 13 receptions, 288 yards, and two touchdowns on less than 80 snaps in preseason. We'll talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about D.D. Westbrook. I am quietly optimistic that D.D. Westbrook can be the number one receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars in the second half of this season because Alan Hearns and Marquise Lee aren't giving us nothing. So they had an opportunity through eight weeks, failed to deliver. Why not give D.D. Westbrook a chance? Because Jaguars coaches know Alan Robinson's not walking through that door. Well, he might to go to the trainer's room, but he'll have crutches He's not playing, but you're not starting D.D. Westbrook over Amari Cooper. Don't go out and do something silly, like benching Amari Cooper, just as he is on the precipice of a sustained breakout. I mean, this guy is an undisputable talent. I'm not hearing any more analysis disparaging Amari Cooper. College dominator, breakout, speed score, agility score, spark score, all above the 90th percentile. This is the greatest prospect we've seen since Calvin Johnson. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. He's also the least efficient NFL wide receiver we've seen since Greg Little, given his target share. He's number one in drop rate on playerprofiler.com. I understand. I also understand that Amari Cooper is a front runner. I think he would admit this. I think if you had Amari Cooper on Truth Serum and you asked, are you a front runner? He would say, yeah, yeah, kind of am. Yeah, I am a front runner. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, you're kind of right. He loves easy matchups, and then when he faces difficult secondaries, challenging cornerback matchups like Aqib Talib, he always shrinks in those situations. This is why he's one of the most volatile receivers in the NFL. We have a volatility score. Go to playerprofiler.com, go to the Amari Cooper page, click on game log, and there you'll see his week-to-week volatility score. It's number two among NFL wide receivers. For a full-time receiver to be number two in volatility is very difficult because most of the time, the most volatile receivers are part-timers. They're not starting receivers. They're Tyler Lockett. They're typically stretch X number three options in the passing game. Those are typically the most volatile receivers, not the number one X receiver. Rarely. 
early. Do you see that? But that's Amari Cooper. It's a roller coaster based on schedule strength. And he's had a very difficult schedule in the first half that gets significantly easier in the second half. This is what happened last year. He had 100-yard performances against the Saints, the Bucks, the Chargers, the Chiefs. Now he's facing the Chiefs, the Patriots, the Eagles, the Cowboys. A lot of green grass ahead on the Amari Cooper schedule. Recency bias is a hell of a drug. We should ask Josh Hermsmeyer about Amari Cooper and about recency bias. Amari Cooper has everything. The Amari Cooper profile has everything any rational fantasy analyst would ever want. The drops fallacy. Air yards. Target share being the primary driver of production. Recency bias. Zooming out and looking at the full profile going back to college. Amari Cooper is the personification of all player profiler mantras. So yes, you better believe I will be riding Amari Cooper in the second half this year, including this week against the Dolphins secondary. He'll face off against Xavier Howard. Since Miami released Byron Maxwell, Joe Flacco and Josh McCown posted passer ratings well over 100, and outside receivers Robbie Anderson and Jeremy Macklin both scored touchdowns. This is what the front runner Amari Cooper has been waiting for because an inefficient eight games represents a small sample. And you can say the same thing on the other end of the spectrum about Ted Ginn. Ted Ginn is not as efficient as he's shown through the first eight weeks. Ted Ginn has been the NFL's most efficient receiver. He only has one drop. And can you believe that? Ted Ginn, yes. Is he that good? No, no. He's number two in target separation. He's gaining almost two and a half yards of separation at target on playerprofiler.com. He's number three in catch rate despite a 10.5 average depth of target. This is something we have to talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about. The idea that catch rate needs to be adjusted based on the depth of the target. Well, with Ted Ginn, it doesn't matter. His yards per target is number one in the NFL, 13.6, because he's catching balls predominantly downfield at a 77.4% clip. Whoa! But I do believe this will lead Drew Brees to target Ted Ginn more frequently, even though Brandon Coleman is out-snapping Ted Ginn. It's true. Brandon Coleman is out-snapping Ted Ginn, running more routes than Ted Ginn, but when Ted Ginn is on the field, Drew Brees is targeting him because plays targeting Ted Ginn have been the most efficient plays called in the NFL all year. (laughs) I can't make this up! No one would or could make that up. I'm not making this up. This is facts. I'm on the Ted Ginn profile right now. Facts only. He's got a plus 39.8 production premium. (laughs) What? And this week he faces the Buccaneers. By far and away the worst pass defense. And it's a coin flip whether or not their only quality defensive back, Brent Grimes, even plays. And it's at New Orleans. I mean... Why do you think I'm playing Drew Brees on no halftime? And I will certainly be playing Ted Ginn in all formats. Oh, you better believe it. Now, I wish, I so wish that we were not facing so many bye weeks in week nine because I would consider benching A.J. Green. We'll ask Josh about this because A.J. Green's facing Rambo or Halloween season. Rambo, right? Right? 
The Jaguars are trending toward a truly historic defense. It's conceivable, not just based on analytics and advanced metrics, but the basic counting stats for which we use to evaluate the quality of defenses, things like yards allowed, points against, even the most rudimentary measurements point toward the Jacksonville Jaguars having a top five defense of all time, potentially, depending how the second half plays out, the best defense of all time. And A.J. Green is on the Bengals. Not a good offense. Catching passes from Andy Dalton, a replacement-level quarterback. So he has no help against that defense, in particular, those two corners. Possibly the best cornerback duo of all time. The coverage rating on playerprofiler.com, which looks at the cornerback's target rate, how frequently is he being targeted, the pass breakups, the catch rate allowed, the yards per target allowed. Jalen Ramsey and A.J. Boye are top five in coverage rating. They also happen to be top three in our cornerback rankings. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. Go to seasonal, click on cornerbacks. There you can see their cornerback rankings and the receiver they're likely to match up with this week. And the only reason A.J. Boye isn't ranked ahead of Jalen Ramsey is because Jalen Ramsey is matched up with opposing number one options as opposed to Boye, who typically matches up against opposing number two options. Regardless, they're both excellent. I mean, Boye is top five in every efficiency metric from QB rating allowed, catch rate allowed. It's amazing. Amazing. But we do not have a dearth of options at the wide receiver position this week. I mean, Antonio Brown's on by. We have to play A.J. Green. But I dream of a world in which I could argue benching A.J. Green because he's facing Ram Boo. Just too scared. I'm just too scared to play A.J. Green. But do you know who's allowing even less fantasy points per target, per snap, and per game than A.J. Boye and Jalen Ramsey? It's Josh Norman. It's a smaller sample because he's only played in a handful of games. But it's conceivable that Josh Norman shadows Doug Baldwin this week. And if I'm Russell Wilson and I see Josh Norman shadowing Doug Baldwin, I mean, I'm a cyborg sent from the future, right? I'm Russell Wilson. I am a cyborg sent from the future to efficiently compile fantasy points. I am Russell Wilson. I see Josh Norman matched up with Doug Baldwin. I will not throw it there. I will throw it out to Paul Richardson or Tyler Lockett, a more efficient deep pass improving our win probability. So that's the argument against starting Doug Baldwin. I would think long and hard before starting Doug Baldwin. In fact, I'm playing Ted Ginn, not Doug Baldwin this week. And I want to apologize about this whole Josh Doxson situation, <laughs> right? I'm trending very wrong about Josh Doxson. Oh, got to make sure you stash Josh Doxson. Well, Josh Doxson was on pace for a 2,000-yard season at TCU. He's an incredible college player. He's been snake-bitten in the NFL. Once he gets an opportunity with Kirk Cousins at quarterback and that Washington pass-oriented offense, oh, it just has to be wheels up for Josh Doxson. It has to be. Look at that catch radius. 97th percentile. This guy's a pterodactyl. Just stash him now and make sure that you have him in with good matchups against Dallas and Philadelphia. Whoops. I mean, he could break out any given week, but it's starting to look more likely that Josh Gordon breaks out in the fantasy football playoffs than Josh Doxson again. We should talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about this situation. And I'm not embarrassed to say that I am starting Demarcus Robinson ahead of Josh Doxson this week. <laughs> I am. It's true. I, I, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry about 
being overly enthusiastic slash wrong about Josh Doxson four weeks ago. And I'm not sorry about maybe, maybe not being wrong about Demarcus Robinson this week. I'm playing Demarcus Robinson because Demarcus Robinson will be matched up against Anthony Brown. The Cowboys are top five in the league in fantasy points allowed to opposing wide receivers. Alex Smith has been one of the most prolific quarterbacks in the league, so it stands to reason that you would consider playing a starting wide receiver in that offense against the Cowboys, specifically matched up with Anthony Brown, who's allowing eight targets per game. His target rate is over 20%, and he only has two pass breakups on the year. That's two pass breakups on the year. I mean, that's less than one every three games. Think about how bad that is. <laughs> it's awful. He's not good. I think Orlando Skandrick will shadow Tyreek Hill. I don't think that will matter for Tyreek Hill. I think Tyreek Hill will produce like Tyreek Hill typically produces, but I think that will help Demarcus Robinson. I mean, Demarcus Robinson led the Chiefs in targets and routes in week seven, and then last week had to match up against Chris Harris, literally the best slot corner in the NFL. So if you need a dart throw, play Demarcus Robinson in a week where six teams are on by, including the Patriots, the Steelers, and the Chargers, and the Vikings. Oh, we should talk to Josh Hermsmeyer about Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs. Can we just get to Josh Hermsmeyer already? I've been talking about talking to Josh Hermsmeyer for 30 minutes. Let's just talk to him already. What am I waiting for? And be sure to go follow him at Frisco Josh on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program, Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh Hermsmeyer is one of the original OG Roto Underworld podcast buzzards. He's a writer from Rotoviz, and he has his own website, airyards.com. Josh Hermsmeyer, talk to me. Matt Kelly, how you doing? Uh, today is an interesting day. It's been an interesting week in football, and uh, but we just we just learned before we came on the air that Josh Gordon is back. And uh, you know, I just want to remind everyone, you know, he's younger than Juju Smith-Schuster, <laughs> and he's better than Terrell Owens in his prime. So go out there, pick him up, scoop him up, trade him all your picks, trade Mike Evans for him. It's it's time. It's Josh Gordon time on the twenty seventh of November. Why not, right? We have enough guys to hype. Why not add one more? Right? We had a tons of events happen in the last couple of days. It's been the busiest week nine in the history of fantasy football. I think we can say that flatly when you add Ezekiel Elliott's injunction drama. It's been busy. We've been a little bit busy as fantasy analysts. But before we go into fantasy... You live in Northern California, and you're, a San, and you're a, a San Francisco 49ers fan. But most importantly, you survived the Northern California fires in and around Sonoma. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Because we followed it on Twitter. It was quite the saga. You found a dog that had been abandoned by its owner, and it had burnt paws. So you're a survivor. How is your neighborhood doing? Were kids back to normalcy with... Halloween trick-or-treating last night. Put us there with you. Our National Guard uh, turned away all comers into the neighborhood. Uh, they eventually, by the end of the day, gave out some some candy to folks who were trying to come in and around the neighborhood where I live. But it's basically, it looks like Terminator, Terminator 2, where the machines are, are stomping on, you know, bones and ashes and uh, everything's gone. It's, uh, they just yesterday finally got full containment on all the fires in the three counties. Um, it's been, uh, it's been a tough run, but 
as far as my immediate family is concerned, my you know, and my welfare, we were fine all along, never in any danger. Well, we were close to the fire. You're chased out by it. But um, our house survived. Our family is fine. There are people doing much, much worse right. than us, and especially folks who didn't have renter's insurance. Those are the folks that are really, I mean, keep them in your thoughts. And if you're thinking about giving the Red Cross and all the rest are, are plenty, plenty good. And the folks who had insurance on their homes are plenty good. But those poor folks out there who are renting, um, they've got nothing. Uh, I'm great. Everything's doing fine. Uh, we sold our house. So I'm moving to California. I'm getting the hell out. Uh, but uh, You've already sold your house? It took 45 minutes, Matt. Wow. Okay. So you were part of the evacuation, though. When you're leaving, you think it's a distinct possibility that you're not going to have a house when you get back. Like, that was real. Yeah, no, there was two doors down. So two doors down, their house is gone. Gone. That is... Not possible, man. It's just one of those things where before social media, you would see photos of faraway places and you never knew anyone in those cities. Sometimes, very rarely. Uh, I have an aunt that lives in Santa Rosa. Yeah, that's where I live. And, and she works at a hospital, so she really wasn't home. She was working the whole time that this was all happening. But normally, when something like this happens at some city USA, you don't know the people that live there, and you see pictures on the television, but they're grainy, and Tom Brokaw's talking over it, and it doesn't feel real. But when you're connected to people around the country, like I am on social media, I feel like I'm connected to someone in every state now. And so it's really personal when these tragedies happen, and it's visceral in a way that, no, I don't remember feeling this 10 years ago, with some of these national tragedies, we all feel more connected. It's like a more connected pain, but in a way I feel like it's good. It's good. We should all feel a little bit when these things happen. We shouldn't just feel like this is disconnected and it's happening somewhere else and I'm not in a place that's ever been touched by a forest fire or an earthquake. So I'm going to be fine, and I wish the best for those people. But I think my larger point is I feel like there's a lot of challenges with this interconnected society, and a lot of people lament the issues, this connected world that we live in, all the new challenges. But I think this was one of those times when the positive aspects of living in a more connected world, it was the positive I think that's well said. And I think I felt an experience you're describing uh, when it came to Houston. Uh, I have a couple friends on Twitter who live there who are going through it. And just other folks. Uh, and, and you get to hear from them firsthand talking about what they're experiencing and what they're going through. And I think it does humanize things. And uh, as you said, I think it's a good point. I think there are benefits to uh, all the negatives that come along with social media. So what happened to the dog? Came to the Humane Society. And, um, you know, I know there's some people who are saying that, you know, well, he, they hope that he doesn't find his owner. Oh come on! We were we were we were evacuated in in the in the with the strongest term the fire department. They had bullhorns, um, you know. We could see the flames. It was a wall of flames coming. I mean, it, this was so it was not a joke. So uh, no. if you have to choose between your family and your dog, if you ever are in that spot, I would say that uh, maybe you would have a little more sympathy. And then the dog doesn't know. And if they're ready to embrace him and take care of him, I'm fine with that. Dogs love me, man. It's a weird thing. <laughs> Dogs really do. Like every time I come in a room with a dog, for some reason they gravitate towards me and I really have a good time with a dog. I get right down on the floor. I feel like a dog sometimes. I feel like I have a, a kinship with, I don't have a dog myself, but it always makes me happy when I'm around dogs. I make the dogs happy and I can just, I can just sit there and scratch behind a dog's ear for hours. It feels like I have no problem. I love that. My sister has dogs. So I hope that dog does well. Let's talk some football. All right. As we said, 
you're a San Francisco 49ers fan because you lived in the area for many years. As a 49ers fan, how do you feel about getting Jimmy Garoppolo? Jimmy G. I don't know. Anytime you can trade like a box of chocolate second round pick for a player who's, you know, actually played in the NFL, who's actually has some snaps under his belt, and it's the most important position in football, I think you do it every time. And um, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a great QB evaluator. I think it's probably the hardest thing to do in all the sports. But I will say that, like, Bill B, Bill Belichick, your your Patriots, um, they're pretty good at it, uh, or at least with Brady and have, and have rode that hot hand all the way through to all these championships. But he thought enough of Jimmy to keep him around and to keep on moving forward with him until his hand was forced. So I think, uh, you know, when you're looking at a second-round pick, the probability of it hitting, um, the probability of that hit being a quarterback, I think the, chance, the chances are better than 40% that uh, Jimmy G will be a serviceable starting quarterback. And so I think the deal was a shrewd one. When he posted an 86.0 QBR, the 113.3 passer rating in those four games, also one turnover was a fumble. One turnover in four games. I think that's what the coaches like to see the most. He did it without Brandon Cooks. This wasn't full, fully weaponized New England Patriots. And this was Chris Hogan, this was Julian Edelman, and Danny Amendola. It was a bunch of white guys that he went out and threw for 502 <laughs> yards and four touchdowns and zero interceptions in those four games. You should be very, very, very encouraged. He didn't have a Marquise Goodwin running a 4-2-8 stretching the field when he was the quarterback with the Patriots. I think he's going to be pleasantly surprised by the explosive weapons that the 49ers have on the outside, and I think that he will be a pleasant surprise for everyone once he becomes a starter in San Francisco. So is the franchise officially pointed in the right direction, or are there still warning signs based on their decision-making that worry you? No, I don't think it's pointed in the right direction. I think the the rot is at the top. And until Jed York's gone and he's no longer in control of the organization, I think that that rot's going to infect affect Lynch and Shanahan and the way they conduct themselves. That's right. That's well said. That's it. That's it. Jed York is the problem. When there are leaks that emanate from the 49ers organization that nuke deals or demoralize players or put coaches in awkward situations, you can always trace it back to one fucking guy, Jed York. It's very difficult to build a championship football team with a meddling owner. Meddling owners do great damage because you need team cohesion. You need all the players rowing in the same direction, believing in the vision. That's what you need with a 53-man roster. When there's a basketball team with 12 guys, as long as three of them are elite, the owner can do whatever the fuck he wants. It doesn't matter. With football teams, you need them rowing in the same direction. This is why I'm worried about what's going to happen with the Houston Texans. There's a fissure in that locker room created by the owner. I don't think a football team can rise above that type of tension. Maybe they can't. The only way that I think that the Texans can be successful and make a run this year is if they use their owner's divisive remarks to unify the entire locker room. Like, maybe the entire locker room, the entire team can rally around hating the owner. Like, that's the one way you could see, okay, this actually created team cohesion. So, when you talk about John Lynch dealing with the meddling from Jed York, that's inevitable. Who's more important to the future winning? Is it the decisions made by John Lynch or the decisions made by Kyle Shanahan? That's a good question, but I think 
they're conjoined, right? So Lynch is Shanny's handpicked GM, and I think everyone's acknowledged the power arrow goes from Lynch to Shanny, or Shanny, you know, Shanny's the one in charge, not the other way around. And I think there's no separating the two. Um, they both have to operate at a high level, an incredibly competitive environment, the NFL, while having to avoid all this fetid fucking waste spewing from the owner's office. And like I said, I just don't, I don't know that the, the odds are good they'll be able to navigate all that. Um, so, I mean, more important, uh, I think it definitely on the field but I don't I don't think they're going to get it done um, the way they're currently configured. I think the decisions John Lynch makes in player personnel, like acquiring Jimmy Garoppolo, supersede the in-game decisions and the schematic advantages that Kyle Shanahan brings. I think that if John Lynch does his job and he's constantly winning the transactions between other teams and he's adding value when he trades for players, and he's acquiring players with talent profiles above the mean at any particular draft slot, I think that that does the most good. I think that John Lynch is in a position to do the most good for the franchise because I think the contribution of the head coach is largely overrated. It matters. It's just not the primary driver of the success. I agree with that. I I guess where I was coming from was simply that Lynch is not going to do something Shanny doesn't want. So he's, I mean, he's a de facto GM, you know, who's more important to the success. I think it ultimately has to be Shanny because he's the guy pulling the strings. Because they're so conjoined, it's impossible to detangle the two. John Lynch is not the president of football operations like a John Elway. Shanahan actually is the boss. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's go to the other coast. The Philadelphia Eagles acquired Jay Ajayi. Shocking! The fantasy football world, who were seemingly content just riding out this Jay Ajayi as a member of the Dolphins, getting the 12 fantasy points max every week. Now Jay Ajayi is on the Eagles. Is he better or worse off? Anytime a running back gets carries on a winning team, it's a good thing. I think we... Thank you. Thank you. But I mean, that said, he went he went from a no-doubt bell cow role to an uncertain role. And so it, I'm not a big talent guy when it comes to running backs. The efficiency of a running back is going to be between three and four and a half yards. There's such a small difference between a good one and a bad one. The volume supersedes all. So uh, if he's going from a no-doubt role, even on a better team, it means I'm fading him. So until and unless I see him get 15, 16, 17 touches a game, I don't see how he returns much value. And this is all assuming that you are holding on to a second round pick or a third round pick, or you're having to trade for something approaching that value. Right. So the odds that Jay Ajayi returns the same value on the Eagles as he would have on the Dolphins is actually lower now because he's competing for touches in a way that he was not with the Dolphins. However, his ceiling is higher in that he could just outplay LeGarrette Blunt capture a 60% opportunity share on a team that is moving the ball up and down the field, one of the NFL's new prolific offenses, then he would exceed his Dolphins' expectations. So his ceiling is higher now, his floor is much lower, and when I redid my season-long projections, he landed in about the same spot because I had very dim projections for Jay Ajayi as a member of that Dolphins' offense the most fraudulent 4-3 and three team of all time, and that's mathematical. They have the worst point differential of any 4-3 and three team in the history of the NFL. <laughs> like, 
and the second worst run blocking unit after the Seattle Seahawks. So no, Jay Ajayi was not going to be a fantasy force this year. The 200-yard games were not going to come. It's amazing. It's amazing how much credit running backs in particular get for these big triple-digit performances like Jay Ajayi, three 200-yard games last year. It's amazing how little credit is allocated to randomness for those performances, isn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, if you look at from 1950 to 2016, there are, on average, in the entire league, just above 2.1 per season. He had two against the Bills. I mean, to think that that kind of performance was going to reoccur. It's incredible. You want to look back and just say, was that incredible? Oh my gosh, I wish you started. I hope you started. And yes, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I like to look at it and just kind of take it in and, and appreciate it. But I'm saying, if I'm forward looking, do, does that mean hardly anything to me at all? Hardly anything. It, there's certainly some signal because he did it three times, but it, we're, he's, not, he's not Adrian Peterson. He's not. Just not. I mean, there are other guys like uh, Jonas Gray, like no Sean Moreno that had 200-yard games, and I think he's much, much closer to those guys. Jonas Gray was a part-time comedian. The same season, he rushed for 199 yards and four touchdowns against the Colts. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Okay. How are the Eagles so good? Are they? They're telling me they're good. I keep hearing they're great. My friends are texting me that are not immersed in this industry like you and I are, that the Eagles are great. So are they not? I, it's a league of parity. Variance is a real thing. I mean, it's, it's possible that they aren't that good and just played some good games. I mean, the NFL's funny that way. I mean, Car- Carson Wentz is look great more often than not. I have to say, this is not Carson Wentz hate. And the wide receiver core vastly improved over last year. But... I don't think they're head and shoulders above the rest of the NFC, like the record might indicate. I, I think that they're a decent team. And, uh, and if you just look at last week, they really underperformed. Um, so, uh, you know, like I said, there's a league of parity. I don't think, uh, be pronouncing any team elite at this point. I like this about you. Temper expectations across the board. We're looking at a small sample size. It's only eight games. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. We need this. We all need this. I need this. We also need airyards.com. So talk to us about Air Yards and your website, your book. What did you discover in the predictive quality of Air Yards that stimulated you so much? I think it comes back to being a huge fan of Brian Burke, his uh, advanced football analytics site. Um, and he did just a ton of work and putting, putting a lot of work a metric called uh, expected points added, which then became win probability, which then became QBR. So the genesis of QBR starts with Brian Burke, or at least the current incarnation of it. And so reading his work is this idea of adjusting raw production, right? Do we need to account for certain things in the NFL to make better predictions or to better understand performance? And so I took a deep dive into it. And uh, I don't know, what what I found is that most of the adjustments that Burke makes to statistics... um, down a distance are worthless when it comes to predicting the future. Um, describing what happened, they help quite a bit. As sports bettors, as NFL decision makers, as fantasy football players, that, that's all we should care about. We're not sports writers. We're not writing the story of the season. We're we're looking ahead to the next saying, how, how am I going to set my lineup? Who should I bet on? Where should I allocate my DFS budget? And, and so when I went looking for something else, I, I was fortunate to stumble upon data that included air yards. And so I into that and it turns out that air yards are an adjustment that helps you predict the future better and and that really was a genesis and that's why i uh, created a website based on it because depth of target matters air yards matter it it affects everything that has to do with the passing game in the nfl and the passing game in the nfl 
is what causes scoring to happen in the NFL. And those are yes, those are very important things, as anyone who follows the NFL knows. So uh, that that's kind of the site. Um, and now I'm working on a book. I'm working on a book that's manual to all this. For the past three or four years, I've been doing NFL research. And I don't want to say that people don't understand certain metrics, but I do want to say that there is a lot of overuse of descriptive metrics in situations where the implication is that they're predicting the future. And I think the highest value thing, the high order bit, as Steve Jobs used to say, is to understand what you can, you can ignore and, and, and filter that out and only pay attention to the signal. Because when you do that, then your intuition is better, right? Now you're not fooling yourself with randomness. You can let the data that matters sink in and then, then gut take over and the people that are sharp the really sharp people um can really flower they can they're, they're all the things about them that make good being an nfl handicapper uh can come out um, if you just stop paying attention to the things that don't matter from where i sit it's not necessarily in my best interest to discriminate against particular metrics because we just like to make all the metrics available so i'm like a drug dealer and i'm not going to disparage the meth if people want the meth, I got the meth at playerprofiler.com, okay? I got your meth over here. We got plenty. It's fine. It's a great drug. It does stuff that you want it to do. But the heroin's fine, too. And the cocaine's great. And the marijuana's excellent. Everything's great. For all the kids, I'm doing a bit. This is not literal. This is figurative. <laughs> I'm not a drug dealer. And what you found, essentially, is... The passing game is the biggest driver in NFL efficiency and, and the ability for teams to score points. And that breaking it down within the passing game, that the yards after the catch are more susceptible to randomness than the air yards. So if you can just zero in on the thing that's least susceptible to randomness, then you can glean learnings about player performance that were otherwise uncovered because they were layered in these more random elements. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I would say, though, that you know, even Yak is completely dependent on the depth of the target. So in a short pass, you're going to have more Yak. Uh, and, it, and that's true, and it's fairly linear all the way down to about 12 yards. After that, it levels off and it's fairly constant. There's a little bump around 20 yards, and that kind of accounts for those deep balls that, you know, they catch at about a 30-yard uh, depth and then run all the way to the house, so those, those shot plays. But for the most part, you just need to account for those first 12 yards for Yak with uh, the depth of target. For catch rate, it's even more consistent from negative five air yards all the way to 30 air yards. And if you're not adjusting for depth of target, for completion rate on the QB side, and you're missing out on a huge piece of the information. In fact, I would go so far as to say, with understanding the hubris is implied, if you're not doing that with your passing metrics, your metric is fucking broken because it's that important. You have a 90% catch rate on short passes and a 45% catch rate on 12-yard, 14-yard passes. So if you're not accounting for the depth of target that a quarterback is passing to in that distribution of his plays and a the depth of target that a wide receiver is catching in their distribution of targets, then you're missing a huge, huge part of football. Martavis Bryant, if you are out there, I hope you are listening very carefully because Josh Hermsmeyer just gave you your argument that you can present to Mike Tomlin to get your job back because Juju Smith-Schuster's out here scoring touchdowns on Yak! And you're posting a catch rate below 55% year after year because your depth of target is like 25 yards. You have an argument, Martavis. I hope you're listening. Airyards.com. Now, 
Which player has been the most pleasant surprise for you personally this year? Adam Thielen. Boy, look at him. I mean, he's just oh, gone out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So good. Every week he goes out there and just performs. He's, he's got his, finally got his first TD this week. I felt good. Um, he's the wide receiver four on the year currently Whoop. in PBR, I think. Uh, just Whoop. terrific. Terrific receiver. Just a great story. This guy went to a small high school, was Mr. Everything, plays every sport at a high level. He could have gone to a small school to play basketball, to play football. Really, every sport was on the table for him, including baseball. He chose the violent sport. These are the turning points in people's lives where you look back and you can either respect them more because of decision they made or respect them less because they may have taken the easy path, Kevin Durant. In the case of Adam Thielen, at every point, he took the more difficult path, and he decided to play football, a very difficult sport that really hurts. And all he's ever done is play football in the coldest state in the country after Alaska, Minnesota. So for a lot of reasons... I love Adam Thielen. And all he does is catch footballs. That's all he does is he goes out there and he catches footballs. And I think one of the reasons why you like Adam Thielen so much is because when you adjust his catch rate based on his depth of target, it's even more impressive. Absolutely. That he is able to squeeze the football so far downfield, he may have the best hands in the league. Now, which player is the most disappointing for you this season? One where you were sure, you had all these predictive analytics lined up, and you're like, this guy is going to break out this year, or he will be a top fantasy option this year, and then nothing. Who's that guy? Marius Thomas. And, and, and the reason is that he was a high floor guy by all standards. Um, and, and part of that high floor has to do with scoring TDs, which he just hasn't done anymore. He stopped getting those looks in the in the red zone, and he... He always has either a nagging injury or something else that limited his ceiling. And we knew that going in. But it was poor QB player, just the injury to Manny, putting too much pressure on him or, or whatever else might be wrong with the Broncos right now. Myriad reasons. But he's the biggest disappointment to me. He's a wide receiver three guy now. Got a, a much lower floor than we would like for his draft capital. Um, and certainly that my models and me personally thought he was going to be this year, which was a, a lock for a wide receiver two with some upside. Um, yeah, huge disappointment for me. It's been a very slow, steady, gradual decline for Demarius Thomas. At all these points, you think he might rebound. He might become the wide receiver one we were accustomed to three years ago. But no, he just takes that gradual next step down. High-end wide receiver one, low-end wide receiver one, high-end wide receiver two, low-end wide receiver two, now high-end wide receiver three. The ceiling and the floor are low for Demarius Thomas because you mentioned it. Trevor Simeon. Trevor Simeon outperformed expectations last year, and now the real Trevor Simeon has stood up, and the team is turning to Brock Osweiler. I don't know if that's breaking news. We should maybe run the breaking news. The Denver Broncos will start Brock Osweiler. <laughs> I can't say that name without laughing. This week, more bad news dimming the prospects of Demarius Thomas. What about Amari Cooper? I thought you might say Amari Cooper. Is Amari Cooper hopeless, or is he on the cusp of a season-long breakout? Amari Cooper is the wide receiver 19 what? on the year in PPR. I'm, I'm just I'm not sure where the narrative is that he's hopeless is coming from. One good game! Recency bias is a tremendous hindrance to fantasy success. I mean, that that is a true fact. So it, it's... 
I don't know. So is not starting your second round pick the week he explodes, right? That's a huge hindrance to fantasy Woo! success. So Woo-hoo! I mean, if you look at if you look at Amari's previous stats, if you look people did that. If you look at his draft position, if you look at his role, if you look at his volume this season, uh, fading Cooper, I, it's a donkey move. I, I, anyone who is not starting Cooper, based on all of the predictive factors, is really making a huge mistake. Yeah, this is the ultimate fade efficiency in the short term example. Cooper is outside the top 80 in every efficiency metric, with the exception of one. He's number one in drop rate, 12% on playerprofiler.com. But all along his whole career, Amari Cooper has been a front runner. He shreds the easy matchups, and he does not perform well against the Akib Talibs of the NFL. He's a volatile receiver, but this is something we've known. We've knew this last year. We knew this the year before. This is what Amari Cooper is. It's a roller coaster ride. Luckily, he's facing four bottom six pass defenses in the next six weeks. So get ready, right? Get ready to start Amari Cooper over and over and over and over again and enjoy Amari Cooper's high-end fantasy production. He led all wide receivers in fantasy points one week this season because that's his ceiling. His ceiling is best fantasy wide receiver on any given week, and he's facing the Chiefs, the Patriots, the Eagles, and the Cowboys over the next six weeks. Just look at the schedule. Sometimes we call it randomness, Josh, but we have the schedule. How the schedule shakes up was random, right? If you think about who your opponents are in weeks 1 through 17, you can think of that as a random lottery. But then once the random lottery happens and the ping pong balls get pulled out and the schedule is released, we know the schedule. We knew the schedule was difficult to start the year and very easy to end the year for Amari Cooper. And we're going to see it play out where Amari Cooper is outside the top 15 for the first eight weeks and then inside the top 10 for the final eight weeks. This isn't surprising and it's almost like there's nothing to see here. And if you're trying to look at the efficiency metrics, you're a donkey. Is that, did I do that right? Amen. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> that is the take. Okay. Yes. We are on the right track. We are seeing eye to eye. We are aligned. Yes, we are aligned. Would you bench Doug Baldwin this week? So this is going to be the, the fullest analysis I give you probably the entire. Ooh. They're home and they're favorite. Their total's 45 and their implied points are 26. Russ Wilson's coming off, I think, one of the best games of the year for him. It was good. All right. <laughs> it was All right. one of the best football games I've ever seen also. Incredible. I mean, his deep passing. Anyway, he, he's, he's a remarkable quarterback. But Baldwin has a 24% target share on the season, and he gets 24% of the air yards on the team. And this is through all. And that's despite having the lowest ADOT on the team. So that means he's peppered with targets. And his ADOT's actually risen from past seasons. His weighted opportunity rating is the tops on the team. And this is for the whole season. But even if you look at just the last four weeks, which is a four-week rolling window is the way to look at things. It's the way that the NFL does it. They go back four weeks. And I think probably the conventions, they couldn't go back any further and completely break down tape for more than four weeks. But it turns out it works really well. But even then, his target share jumps to 25%, and his air yard share goes to 29%. So, okay, opportunity the most predictive thing we have in terms of what is going to tell us um, how a wide receiver is going to do in fantasy in, in the future is saying that he's the best on the team. So, no, you're not benching Doug Baldwin. I mean, and then if you look at the matchup um, just this week, I mean, the Washington D has a racer of 0.8, which means that for every air yard thrown, they give up 0.8 receiving yards uh, down the field. And 
they're most vulnerable medium and deep. So they're most vulnerable around 15 yards and 15 yards plus. And then they're also worse than league average short. And that's where Baldwin operates on the majority of his routes. He also runs deep routes for medium. But he, he, that's where he usually is. And, 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 they're, and they're pretty bad there. I mean, they're worse than the average. So there's no reason, there's no really good reason to fade Doug Baldwin. Now, the best you can say is that the other receivers on that team are in great spots this week, and they are starting to get volume. And I am not arguing with you. If you're going to be playing DFS this week... That's part of the thesis, is that if Russell Wilson is so efficient passing deep, why isn't he using his deep weapons more? Those are more efficient throws. Those give... Yeah. The Seahawks, the better chance to win, targeting Tyler Lockett and Paul Richardson downfield. Theoretically, Doug Baldwin's target share should start to decline. Well, the thing we can say about volume is that it's sticky. So the fact that it has over the season increased, you look at the first four games versus the last four games, it has gone up. His target share and his share of air yards have both gone up. I don't think that there's evidence to suggest that it's an imminent decline. I would suggest, though, that Russ getting better means the pie is getting bigger. The rising tide lifts all boats. Thank you. There it is. You nailed it. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not fading Doug, and I'm not fading the other guys either. I think they're some of them are a pretty good medium price. Yeah. Plays in DFS this weekend, and, and I'm certainly thinking about starting them in my deeper leagues. Now, Josh Norman could shadow Doug Baldwin this week, and Josh Norman is number one on PlayerProfiler.com in both fantasy points per snap allowed and fantasy points per game allowed, and he's one of the few corners in the NFL that has his coach's permission to shadow the opposing team's best receiver. So that's the other argument against starting Baldwin this week is that Josh Norman is one of the few cornerbacks that will shadow him for the majority of his routes, and he can't just go in motion and get away from the top corner. That said, opportunity is king, and opportunity supersedes any decrease in efficiency because of the cornerback matchup. I think the when you're talking about guys that are really good at running away from cornerbacks laterally, that they aren't as impacted by man-on-man coverage, they aren't as impacted by zone coverage, and that's really the type of player that Doug Baldwin is. He can find soft spot in zones. He's agile. He can also run away from a guy like Norman. He can run away from Norman, who isn't a high-end spark guy. He isn't. He, he's just very good at his job, right? He's technically sound. Yeah, he runs a four six six forty. He's right. just very intense. He's very technically sound, but he's not necessarily right. fast or explosive. So I don't think he's he's going to prevent, uh, if they decide to make Doug Baldwin part of their plan of attack, that I don't think he's going to prevent him from getting his catches. He may stop him, and they can stop him on his yak, but I think he's still going to get targeted. He's still going to have a reasonably high floor, so no, I'm not benching. Would you ever consider benching A.J. Green, even against Jacksonville? No, and that's my entire answer. Love it. Okay, bigger boost at the trade deadline, Kelvin Benjamin or Devin Funches? Funches, for sure. And he's on my buy low list this week, meaning that he's underperformed his volume and positive regression should be coming. And if you couple that with an increased role, Kelvin Benjamin's gone. That means more targets. I mean, Kelvin Benjamin's gone, Josh. Kelvin Benjamin's gone. Everybody, Kelvin Benjamin's gone! He gone! Fun, fun, fun with fun, fun, punches.
So let me get this straight. I'm about to put some words in your mouth, Josh. Get ready. Open up. So what you're saying is Devin Funches is a better player than Kelvin Benjamin in a vacuum. <laughs> I don't make those kind of determinations. I, I, here's what I would say. I would say that if they dealt Kelvin Benjamin and kept Funches, and you can make an argument that it's not because of contract, it's not that they're trying to get out from under his bad contract or something like that. It, it, you could make the argument it's about them liking Funches more as a player. It just becomes very difficult to make determinations on talent when you're not there with practice. We're outsiders. Um, we have stats. We have what we see on game day. We do have stats. Lots of stats. Some of us, some of us are tape grinders. Every stat you could possibly want, right? The meth, the marijuana, cocaine. We got it all. Uppers, downers. Woohoo! Jesus. Like, how does he use his feet? Does he have a good hip swivel? I mean, so you can get down to that level of granularity. Hip swivel. I got to say, in Vegas, the odds of a hip swivel being mentioned on a podcast with Matt Kelly and Josh Hermsmeyer was very low. <laughs> right. I try and eliminate the noise. And, and right now, the signal is he was already due for positive regression. What's not to like? Uh, nothing. Okay, a game. Fraud or no fraud. Is Ty Montgomery a fraud? Fraud. I mean, he didn't do anything with his opportunity, and he got Wally Pipped by Jones. Is Devontae Freeman a fraud? No. He's produced three straight seasons at a high level, and he hasn't. His athleticism is better than we think. It's fine until he starts traveling over 30 yards. He's a savant runner, man. There are, very, there are a handful of running backs that are so instinctual behind the line of scrimmage and have such a spatial awareness that allows him to find the, the creases and crevices in a defense. He's one of those special talents, but he hasn't been playing particularly well this year. Tevin Coleman has been more efficient across the board, and now the coaches are giving Tevin Coleman a bigger opportunity share. You might say, well, you just got done saying efficiency is overrated. Stop talking about efficiency in the short run. Well, efficiency starts mattering once the coaches start giving the more efficient player more touches. That that's how efficiency gets translated into more opportunity. That's starting to happen with the Falcons. But more than anything, it's this massive regression that's happening where the red zone conversion rate is back to normal. The game script is even. Everything has reverted from heavily overweighted toward the offense to even Steven this year in Atlanta. Any running back operating in an even Steven offense and not dominating the touches? You're not going to be an RB1 in fantasy. It doesn't matter if you're a savant or not. Isn't he injured too? And he picked up a shoulder stinger last week, so that literally adds insult to injury. Is Kareem Hunt a fraud? No. He is the most projectable, bankable type of RB there is. He's a great balance and breaks a ton of tackles, and that adds those yards after the tackle, after the point of contact. He was my favorite rookie coming back in August. I continue... Every time I look at my shares on all my only teams, I just get wood. I just sprout a tent. I really like him. And I think that, again, when you're looking at running backs, the thing you want, you want to bank on volume because that's an indicator of talent. But the other thing that he has control over and something I wrote about on your site this past offseason was that the one of the only things that's in control of the running back, you can divorce it mostly from the offensive line or the game script or what have you, is their ability to break a tackle or elude a tackle. And so, uh, you know, Cream Hunt is the top's. I think was the top in the nation in college and now is the tops. Um, as I say, that's the most projectable type of running back there is.
Kareem Hunt is now number one in rushing yards. He's number one in breakaway runs of 15 yards or longer. And he's also, as you mentioned, number one innovated tackles. This is despite the Kansas City Chiefs not having a quality run-blocking offensive line. This is the David Johnson effect, Josh. Arizona Cardinals' offensive line was not a quality run-blocking unit last season, but they got credit for being at least adequate because of David Johnson's great production, and that's what we're seeing. Kareem Hunt is wallpapering over the deficiencies in that Kansas City offensive line, which makes him as legit as they come and the least fraudulent young running back we have in the NFL, which takes me to Joe Mixon. Is he a fraud? Yeah, I'm going to say no, but, but hear me out. What? Because he's exactly what his stats say he is. He's a situational role player on a bad running team. He's the RB 30-something. Yeah, that's Joe Mixon. But but Dynasty Leaguers, including myself, think that he's more than that. You think that he's TJ Yeldon. I think that he's TJ Yeldon plus. I think TJ Yeldon 2.0 is a quality NFL running back. I think if you turned up the dial on TJ Yeldon across the board, made him faster, more explosive, more agile, better in the passing game, that TJ Yeldon would be a hell of a football player, be a very good NFL running back. No, I agree with you. I think that, you know, when I made the comp about TJ Yeldon, the great thing about it, like a Rosars test, you look at it and you say, well, the outcome with TJ Yeldon has been so far bad. So therefore I'm saying bad right. about another prospect. And that, right. that that's just not, that's not valid. Like TJ Yeldon, if you put him on the Dallas Cowboys, I think people would be happy. With, he could be a three down running back. Um, and I think the same could be said for Mixon in a good situation. TJ Yeldon has nine carries on the year and 137 total yards. (laughs) So he's doing pretty good. That's not such an insult. God, it's fair. It's fair criticism, but he is better than TJ Yeldon. I will say that flatly. Alex Collins, is he a fraud? Yeah, so this is the one where I punt. If he continues to get touches, no. If he doesn't, yes. I mean, I have no crystal ball. It helps me peer into the mind of the fucking coaches in Baltimore. It's really unclear what the hell is going on there. And uh, uh, watching Collins and listening to Tony Romo drool over him the other night. Ugh. I don't know. Maybe that sways me a little. Ugh. Alex Collins is doing what Tevin Coleman is doing in Atlanta. He's the most efficient running back in the backfield, and he's being awarded more touches because of it. The coaches can't detangle the talent from the random chance any better than we can oftentimes. So Alex Collins is going to get a lot more carries as long as he's posting a 6.0 yards per carry. I mean, his 2.30 yards created per carry is top five. His breakaway run rate, which is breakaway runs per carry, 12.5 is a ridiculous number. It's number one in the league. His juke rate, evaded tackles per touch. These are all efficiency metrics, rate stats. That's also top five. As the carries go up, you will see the efficiency start to revert back to the mean. What's interesting to me is that he's able to do this with Marshall Yanda being out. Marshall Yanda was one of the league's signature road grader run blockers. Like If you had to pick a guard to run behind in the NFL, he was tops. And to lose that guy, the signature run blocker on your offensive line, I thought the Baltimore run game would be finished. I thought they would be Miami when that happened. And that has not been the case. 
They've been just as good, if not better, without Yanda. And the only difference is Collins. What the fuck? Right? (laughs) He's speechless. Thank you. That's all we needed from you. Just air. He's good, I guess. I don't know. It's not enough sample. The odds that he's Devontae Freeman are low. I will say that. Who is the best wide receiver in the NFL right now? Maybe Antonio Brown. Yeah, no, no, uh, no suspense there. He's not getting cute. No curveballs here, right? You're just going straight down the middle, right? Here you go. Line it up. I would have said Odell Beckham at the beginning of the season. I thought you were going to say OBJ. Antonio Brown has done it again. And I think you said on multiple occasions that he has the profile of a Jerry Rice, right? A guy who's have a long career and... And he has the skills of, of Jerry Rice, the way his skills as a technician, things that we overlook sometimes with our metrics, he has in spades, and, and it shows up in production. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Antonio Brown is, he's the guy. He's the guy, and he has been for a long time. Okay, I rarely do this, but having Josh Hermsmeyer on the podcast is a great resource, a great gift. So I'm going to do the thing where I ask him to prostitute out his rankings for us. I really never do this. Josh Hermsmeyer has listened to the show for many years. He's probably stopped by now because he now knows more than I do. But for a while, he was absolutely a listener and a buzzard, so a proud buzzard. And he knows I don't do this. I don't just pump guests for information. We try to have a stimulating conversation. But I am going to pump you for information just this one time. Give us your top five dynasty receivers. List these players for us, please. I'm begging you. These are not sexy. I mean, these are the ones everyone else would say. Um, A.B., A.J. Green, Odell Beckham, Mike Evans, and Julio. And and the reason why it's boring. So no young players sneaking in there? Well. No Stephon Diggs sneaking in there? No, not in the top five. Not in the top five. Even even in Dynasty. Okay, okay, okay. Even in Dynasty. I, that's why I asked. I was wondering if there was going to be a young receiver sneaking in there. I think you can with Diggs until he gives you a full season because health is a skill sort of. Is he just too slight to stand up to a full season's workload? And can he play less than 100% and still be effective? Um, and those are questions that, that remain to be answered. But he is uh, he's Antonio Brown. Oh, good, so. Yes, yes. He is my favorite receiver. I think he and Adam Thielen are, <laughs> are my favorite receivers. And I think that makes me a Vikings fan. If your two favorite receivers in the NFL are both on the same team, I think it stands to reason that you would necessarily be a fan of that team. Now, you also mentioned Mike Evans. Mike Evans is an enigma to me. Have you figured him out? Yeah. He catches the ball, Matt, and he falls down. That's that's what he does. And in the end zone, uh, more often than his peers. So he gets a lot of opportunity. And, and, and look, he's good. I mean, he's... He has to be good. He's number one in the NFL last season in completed air yards, but also number 67 with a mere 175 yards after the catch on 171 targets, which means his yards after the catch per target was 1.0, which is a number so small that I've never seen it. It doesn't even register with me a 1.0 yards after the catch per target. One of the amazing shock stats of 2016. You agree? Agreed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense, no. Dude, what is he doing? It's like he's jumping into a pool. I used to play a game with my friend where we would jump off the diving board and try to make an athletic, spectacular catch falling into water. 
Well, that's Mike Evans. Mike Evans is just out there making acrobatic catches and then falling into a tank. Mike Evans dunk tank. This is the name of the show. Mike (laughs) Evans dunk tank. Perfect. He is like catching footballs into a dunk tank every fucking week. How else can you explain this yards after the catch? I got nothing. It's crazy. It has to do with the way it, it has to do with the way they deploy him. Has to do with the type of routes they ask him to run, but it also has to do with his inherent talent, right? I mean, he just um, with Doug Baldwin, he's not running across the field away from defenders and getting himself into big open spaces where he can then turn it upfield and create. Yeah, he he's a guy who wins by being big. He needs to take ballet class or something. Like Herschel Walker took ballet. Mike Evans needs to take ballet. Now, staying with the Buccaneers. It's important that Mike Evans have a quarterback that can deliver the football down the field to him. Jameis Winston's hurt. He's been very volatile this year. Is he officially a bust? I think he's a serviceable NFL QB. No, he's not a bust. He makes questionable throws sometimes. I think they're going to need a lot more out of him if they're going to make the playoffs in real-life football. That was a textbook sports radio question right there. Okay, give us one rest-of-season sleeper based on air yards. Robbie Anderson. For the rest of the season, yes. But I think yeah. he, Robbie Anderson, what I think he is, is he's this year's Toronto Prior, right? He's a guy on a talent-deficient team, and there's no one else there, so he's getting the targets on a team with a normal level of talent would indicate that he is good, right? That he's truly good. But that's not the case here. Um, he does run a nine route really good, or go route really, really well. Yeah. Um, and, he seems to, and he seems to catch those balls at a reasonable clip, so he scores touchdowns. That's great. Gets a lot of air yards. I think you put him on a team like what happened with Terrell Pryor this year, a little more competition for the targets, and I think you see he becomes far less viable. This is why we have a height-adjusted component to speed scores with wide receivers. Robbie Anderson's height-adjusted speed score, 103.2, 77th percentile, because he's 6'3", while running a 4-4-1. That helps him catch deep passes with lots of air yards. You mentioned that he is this year's Terrell Pryor. What the hell happened to Terrell Pryor? Yeah, and like I alluded to, I mean, that that's just it. He... he he went to a team with more talent, and so he's kind of differentiating himself, separating from the field and, and earning the targets, which is why when we say the volume in the NFL targets, it, it's actually an indicator that the guy deserved a target. Um, he doesn't deserve him in Washington. But does that mean that Josh Doxson's definitively better than him? Because Josh Doxson is not producing, even though the snaps and the routes have been ratcheted up significantly. What's going on? Yeah, I know you love Doxon and you've loved him for a long time. And, uh, you know, he's, he was. I did love him, but now I like him because we're a year and a half into this experiment and I can no longer say I love him. I'm starting to lose that love and feeling, Josh. Yeah, he's just shown nothing so far, obviously, because of injury to some extent to really kind of warrant the ridiculous praise. That's my problem with him. Um, a lot of people wanted to say this last week was going to be a big week for him because of Snapshare. Ugh. Snaps are empty volume. I mean, you, you can run all sorts of routes. If you don't earn a target, you're useless in fantasy. So I learned that the hard way with Tanner Gentry. <laughs> wow. Tanner Gentry, that's digging deep. Oh, he had lots of snaps, no targets. Plenty of snaps, no targets. Lots of snaps. Snaps and snaps and snaps. Snaps as far as the eye can see, no targets. I know you fade coach speak. This is another occasion where that would have paid off. Uh, they talked about how he was their number one pick, and now we're going to see what he's got. And then, then they started Terrell Pryor. I mean, you know, it's... Uh... You know who this sounds like? No. This sounds eerily similar to Kevin White. <laughs> yeah. This was the same coach speak, the same career arc, 
we got with Kevin White. It's sad, and maybe there isn't enough similarity to group them all together. I would almost rather have Laquan Treadwell at this point, because at least Laquan Treadwell's not getting the same opportunity share, the same snap share that Josh Doxson is. Laquan Treadwell has an excuse at this point, and he's a lot younger. Josh Doxson's pissing me off, dude. Let's talk about someone that's really good. Des Bryant. Are Des Bryant's touchdowns, is that a skill, his ability to score touchdowns? I guess so. It's a tough question. That's a tough question, right? Yeah, it is. It's, it's a good question, but I don't know that I find the distinction between skill or opportunity that interesting. I, if we could best predict touchdowns using just targets and air cards, then where the actual skill lies is kind of irrelevant to me. It's, it's, I don't know. You shared earlier a college story. I will, too. My friend in college is absolutely obsessed with understanding why ladies seem to gravitate towards dudes who like, made them chase. For me, it was, just, it was just good enough to know that that's true and then to act accordingly. So it's true that right. targets, raw targets and air yards predict touchdowns. That friend sounds like a real sweetheart, by the way. Yeah, yeah, real, real sweetheart. Real nice guy. Yeah, really nice guy. Friend. He'll help you move, right? He'll help you move? You pack your boxes. Yeah, he's the one at the bottom of the stairs when you're moving the futon, right? Exactly. It's just friend zone, dude. So, yeah, but... Great guy. Great, great guy. Still, Still single. Sweetheart. Great guy. <laughs> to the extent that he has a, an otherworldly TD rate, we have to acknowledge that. Right? Right. But to the extent that that is not predictive of the future, I don't care. Here's my take. With all of these predictive analytics, we're allowed to have one outlier player per rule of thumb. So yards after the catch are less sticky, except with Golden Tate, right? Golden Tate is this outlier, right, that breaks the model. The model breakers. For every metric where we have models built around them, we have one model breaker per metric. That's what I allow. So with the rules of thumb around yards after the catch, Golden Tate is the model breaker. And with the rules of thumb around touchdown scoring, I allow Des Bryant to be the one model breaker. Is that fair or stupid? No, I think that's fair. And, uh, and I think that to not acknowledge that he's really, really good at catching touchdowns and does it as, at a historical rate is to be a slave to the idea that there can be no skill in football that can be measured by efficiency. And I think that's as bad as anything else you could do with Aaron Rodgers, his TD rate is otherworldly, and you can see it any way you want to measure it. And to say that he doesn't have that skill uh, flies in the face of reason and common sense. Well said. What about tight ends? Do you ever think about tight ends ever? When they <laughs> pop up in my model, sure. Right. But they need to get a lot of they need a lot get a lot of the offensive looks, and you can't measure their their production by snaps. I mean, it's even worse because you know half the time they're blocking. Um, if they're a normal tight end, if they're a move tight end. Yeah, no, I, I only, I only, when they burble up, how's that? When they burble up, I pay attention. Well, Jason Witten's ADOT was famously criticized as year over year ADOT consistently declining at the same, on the same negative slope as Demarius Thomas's fantasy points per game, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, here's Jason Witten, 11.9 fantasy points per game, the number six tight end in fantasy at age 35. Pretty cool, right? Some guys are just good. Yes. I mean, I don't, you know, what, what are you, what are you going to do? Yeah, no, that's great. No, no, along these same lines, who's the most misunderstood player by the fantasy experts, according to Josh Hermsmeyer? I disagree with folks about certain players, but I'm more interested in the process, right? Than the results. So long as your results are decent. So like, I think the edges come from having the discipline to not chase ghosts down radicals, right? To, to, to have the discipline to push the noise away and pay attention to what matters. And sticking with Amari Cooper when Tout said it was almost impossible for him to rebound is a great example of doing that. That sounded great, by the way. And it's reinforced your mission 
as a fantasy analyst. However, we need to know that player that you fight with other analysts about the most. Tell us! Give me somebody! Oh, I got nothing, man. Moving on! Which player do you qualify for truther status on? This is it. This is the question. Carlos Hyde. I think he gets an unfair label as injury prone. I, I think he deserves a better fucking team, Matt. And I think if he gets one, take the pressure off him a little bit. I think he can do it in every phase. And I think uh, his future is very bright in the NFL. He's the RB12, Josh. You can't pick a player in the top 12. He's technically an RB1. What are you talking about? I like him in the offseason when he was going in the 6th or 7th round. People said he wasn't a fit for a fucking zone offense. I liked him all along. Nice. Okay, let's pretend that you gave this answer to the previous question, which I think is really a, a great answer to the previous question. Now I'll ask the truther question a different way. You ready? You're in a dynasty startup. It's the final round. Who you got? Probably D.D. Westbrook. Probably D.D. Westbrook. Why do you like D.D. Westbrook? Talk to us about D.D. Westbrook. So when I was looking at players, looking at trying to apply air yards metrics to them, there's a site out there called College Football Film Room. I think it's CFB Film Room. And they track ADOT and they track yards after the catch. And my signature metric that I've developed is called Eraser for receivers. So it's receiver air yard conversion ratio. It's basically receiving yards divided by air yards. A long way of saying he's very efficient um, in a way that is predicted. It's the one efficiency metric that I believe in that I've tested out. He was tops in all the football. Um, he's very, very slight, but very, very fast. He's also got huge concerns about him in terms of his character. Um, choked a girl out, apparently. Um, just, a, just a deplorable human being. He went really late in the draft. Um, most folks in Dynasty Leagues, unless they're very, very astute, are not on him. I know that there are sharp folks on him now. But if we're talking, if it was earlier in the season, he would have been one of my very late round picks. He's a scumbag, but all he does is make big plays down the field. D.D. Westbrook could be this year or next year's Tyreek Hill. D.D. Westbrook could be this year or next year's Tyreek Hill. And that's a great comp in more ways than one, obviously. But uh, yeah, D.D. Westbrook. And I, I don't say that a, with I, I think we'll, we'll end on that. But my comp for him is he's very close to Will Fuller in his workouts, his testing, and a lot of other areas. You know, his depth of target and all that, very similar to Will Fuller. But then all the, the off-the-field stuff and being a late-round pick, he's more similar to Tyreek Hill. So if I had to do a Franken comp, I'd put you know, Will Fuller and Tyreek Hill, you put them in a chamber, out steps D.D. Westbrook. Did you know that Will Fuller is number two in the NFL in fantasy points per game? The Texans have the two best fantasy receivers. That's a fact. I'm not a drug dealer. Dogs love me, man. I just sprout a tent. I got your meth over here. We got plenty. It's fine. It's a great drug. It does stuff that you want it to do. But the heroin's fine, too. The cocaine's great. And the marijuana's excellent. Everything's great. That is a true fact. Oh, Josh. I am such a great mood today. What a day. Huh. There is a Reddit thread. A subreddit devoted to Matt Kelly. <laughs> All right. And the game is, can we get this thing up to 100 comments? And I am just transfixed.
fixed by this forum. This is one of the greatest days in my life on the internet. I mean, I've been mentioned on Reddit before because what will happen is someone will ask the question, which podcast should I listen to for fantasy football? And inevitably, the discussion devolves into a referendum on Matt Kelly, right? Right, right? So this is different in that it was, from the beginning, an open-ended question about Matt Kelly's podcast, Roto Underworld Radio. And this is just delightful. It's the best thing since I discovered porn on the internet because I was a freshman in college when I realized, oh, you can do more than just email. This ethernet has infinite possibilities, literally infinite possibilities. But at first it didn't occur to me that even though there were pictures online that I had browsed, it never occurred to me that I could just type in boobs until I went next door. I was staying in a dormitory. I went to the room next door because my neighbor called me over. He said, you gotta check this out. And that day changed my life. Whoa, whoa, and I slapped my forehead. How did I not think of this? I've been browsing around at different sites, never thought to type in the word boobs. Now that friend is a heart surgeon. It's a genius. So that was the greatest day of my life on the internet. Today, second greatest day. Subreddit devoted to Matt Kelly. That is a true fact. High-end wide receiver one. Low-end wide receiver one. High-end wide receiver two. Low-end wide receiver two. Now, high-end wide receiver three. Fading Cooper, I, it's a donkey move. And if you're trying to look at the efficiency metrics, you're a donkey. It's a donkey move. Is that, did I do that right? Amen. We are on the right track. We are seeing eye to eye. We are aligned. Yes, we are aligned. Stop paying attention to the things that don't matter. I'm about to put some words in your mouth, Josh. Get ready. Open up. I just sprout a tent. The odds of a hip swivel being mentioned on a podcast with Matt Kelly and Josh Hermsmeyer are very low. <laughs> right. I just sprout a tent. And the only difference is Collins. What the fuck? <laughs> wow. Enter Gentry. That's digging deep. Snaps as far as the eye can see. No targets. He is like catching footballs into a dunk tank every fucking week. How else could you explain this yards after the catch? That friend sounds like a real sweetheart, by the way. Yeah, yeah, real, real sweetheart. Yeah, he's the one at the bottom of the stairs when you're moving the futon, right? Great, great guys. Still single, great guy. If you're not accounting for the depth of target that a quarterback is passing to in that distribution of his plays and a depth of target that a wide receiver is catching in their distribution of targets, then you're missing a huge, huge part of football. So if I had to do a Franken comp, I'd put you know, Will Fuller and Tyreek Hill, you put them in a chamber, out steps D.D. Westbrook. Dogs love me, man.